Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a space nerd. Uh, there, there's a part of me that that wishes that that I had been around during the race to the moon and the Apollo program. Just the the excitement that 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 generation had to to see that and and everything. I, I saw this meme the other day that made me laugh more than it should have. I'm Buzz Aldrin, second person to step on the moon. Kneel before me. <clears throat> so so I won't lie. Some of the some of the space stuff that's happening right now kind of brings out the inner child in me. And so, so like if uh, some folks have showed up on a Wednesday night and I've kind of sit in a corner watching a SpaceX launch because it just really kind of brings out the, the kid in me seeing these things happen. I mean, what Elon Musk is doing is, I mean, landing rockets on, on ships in the middle of the ocean. I mean, it's incredible some of the things that, that he's, he's pulling off and SpaceX is pulling off. I don't know if you've seen what NASA recently did and they landed this, this huge rover on the surface of Mars, like, I mean, this thing's the size of a pickup truck. I, I see these rovers, and I think it's like a little, you know, like a little shoebox with wheels. And I mean, these things are massive that they're they're landing on uh, on Mars. Now, hear me. I may be a space nerd, but I'm not volunteering to be a chaplain for any new colony on the moon or on Mars or anything like that. I, I really like my terrestrial home a little bit too much. There are some folks I probably would like to volunteer to be the. Uh, uh, <laughs> for that first trip. Um, But I really do. I think sometime in the next 20 years, a new generation is going to have their very own Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, except they're going to have Martian soil on their boots instead of of moon dust. Uh, I absolutely love when they successfully pull off these landings and things. I love watching Mission Control, the video of what happens when Mission Control, when these uh, these landings uh, happen. Here's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory when they landed the the Perseverance rover uh, a couple weeks ago. We have started our constant velocity accordion, which means we are conducting the sky crane, about to conduct the sky crane maneuver. We've lost direct to earth tones. As expected. As expected. Skycam maneuver has started. About 20 meters off the surface. We're getting signals from MRO. UHF is good. That's unconfirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. At this point, the descent stage has flown away to a safe distance. Perseverance is continuing to transmit direct through Mars reconnaissance orbiter to Earth. See, when they, when they came out and said touchdown confirmed, the place went crazy because, I mean, they'd spent time and effort and, and lots, of, lots of energy in getting that thing from here to, to Mars. And this is what happens when you play video games too much as a kid. You get to, uh, you get to do this professionally. And, and it's incredible. I mean, everybody was so excited about, about what had happened. And, and there's high fives and all kinds of things. Most recently, SpaceX launched a, a, did a high-altitude test of, their, of what they're calling Starship. 
Now, if you watch this at all, the first couple of tests of this thing landed in a spectacular, I think Musk called it a, a rapid uh, deconstruction. Uh, and that's also known as an, as an explosion. Uh, but this one, they landed. This thing's bigger than a school bus, and they took it off, flew it six miles into the atmosphere, and landed it vertically. Because, again, he's thinking they're going to get this thing to Mars, and they got to be able to land it and take it off again. Now, the landing leg broke, and so it still deconstructed itself shortly after landing. But these are all the SpaceX employees. And, and I would have shown you this video, uh, except SpaceX employees' language is a little more colorful than NASA engineers'. If you're curious, you are welcome to go find that on your own internet. Uh, but, uh, but man, they're so excited, these incredible moments of jubilee that take place after they get to witness the payoff of years of hard work and sacrifice and effort. And one of the things you notice in those videos and in the picture is that the joy of that moment is not clouded by politics or race or creed. Uh, you know, they're not worried about what color each other's skin are. They're not worried about what degree they've got or what, what, what school they went to. None of those things matter in that moment. And these are all things that, that have universally divided us as a people since we first drifted away from the plain of Shinar and the Tower of Babel. But what we see is the power of human beings to, uh, to overcome barriers, to achieve things that, that corporately we can never dream of individually. I don't care how smart you are, how much money Elon Musk has got all by himself. He can't land a, a, a starship like that. He can't build a, a, a rover and get it to the moon by himself. It takes a team of people to, to accomplish that. You see, without that group, there, there's never a Mars rover. There's never a, a SpaceX starship. But when all those things working together, all those people working together, those things that were once unimaginable are accomplished by the, by the power of these teams of designers and engineers and visionaries and, and even custodians who work together as part of that team, the high fives that are there for everybody, regardless of the lot in life of the people who are there. You know, it's amazing what a vision of unity and purpose can accomplish, when you think about the church, you know, it doesn't matter what building you meet in for worship. The purpose and vision of the church is consistent. And I would argue that the purpose and vision of the church is the greatest mission that's ever been conceived. It's far greater than trying to land a spacecraft on Mars. And so we have every reason because of the grandiosity of this, of this vision that we have as God's people of making disciples and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have every reason under the sun to be united in that purpose, and in that vision. But sadly, it's not always the case. You know, last week we talked about the problem of the sluggard. Someone who won't commit, someone who won't serve, someone who, who won't lift a finger for the good of the kingdom. Sluggards may recognize that there is work that needs to be done, but they'd just rather somebody else do the work. But as citizens of the kingdom of God, there is so much to be done. And that work can only be done if we do it together. It's far greater than landing a spaceship on Mars. And if they can't do that alone, we certainly can't do the work of the kingdom alone. You know, we see this played out in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, where the church recognized the calling that Christ gave them, that it was so monumental that the only possible way that it could be accomplished was through the unified work of the body. You know, I bet there's not many sluggards on JPL's team to land the uh, Perseverance rover on Mars. There's probably not a lot of sluggards in Elon Musk's organization either because they represent a hindrance to the work 
In the same way, there's not a lot of sluggards that are involved in the work of the body of Christ. Proverbs gives us another example, though, of a person who can have an adverse effect on the work of the body. We know the damage a sluggard can do, but what about this other person that's mentioned to us here in Proverbs chapter 6? Let's turn our attention back there to Proverbs chapter 6 today as we look to verse 12. In Proverbs chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 19. I would invite you to stand with me as I read these words together out of reverence for God's perfect word. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes and signals with his feet and points with his finger. With a perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God, thank you for the wisdom of Proverbs, the caution against being a divisive person who tears apart the unity of the brothers who sows discord in the community. May we guard our own hearts as we seek to avoid being that person and avoid the influence of such a person. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. You know, if the sluggard had a cousin, we would probably call him the agitator. If the sluggard had a cousin, we would probably call him the agitator. And this is what we see here in verses 12 through 14. Proverbs doesn't name the person like it does with the lazy man, but I think the term agitator gets to the root of the issue. You know, the first thing we, we see about him is that, is that God has some very strong words for the agitator. He says he's a, he's a worthless person. He says he's a, he's a wicked man. Now, again, that, that doesn't mean he has no value. We know the Bible affirms that all men and women have value and worth before the Lord. They're created in his image. Jesus gave his life so that all who would receive him could become children of God, regardless of the life they lived prior to trusting in Jesus. So we know that all people have value and worth in the eyes of God. But here we find that the Bible calls this person who sows discord, this agitator, a worthless person, a wicked man. So this isn't a statement about who he is. It is a statement about his character. He is created in the image and likeness of God, but by being a worthless person, a wicked man, what the Bible is saying here is that he is completely bankrupt of character. Literally, morally speaking, he's, he's what we would call a, a good-for-nothing. And that's a terrible thing to call somebody. You're just good-for-nothing. Uh, that's an insult. Those are, those are fighting words to say that you're, you're good-for-nothing. That's what the Bible says here. This person is, a, is good for nothing. Well, why such harsh words? You know, you're not winning many good for nothings to Christ by calling them good for nothings, are you? Why such harsh words in this context? Well, we need to understand that, that what we're dealing with here is in the context of the community of God's people. And just consider how much damage is done uh, to the church's witness over the years because of someone who sows discord. 
many of you can even reflect in your own life. You've been through nasty church splits before. You know the damage that takes place. How many churches have split simply because agitators stirred up the body to consume itself? Galatians 5.15 puts this into very clear words for us. Talking to the church, he says, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's literal speech here. If you're, if you're chewing on each other, then literally you're going to consume each other. That's what's going to happen. And that's what the, the consequences of, of an agitator who sows discord is it, is it stirs up the body, it stirs up the community to the point that, that people are chewing on each other, they're devouring each other. You know, we are living in a world that is bent on hell. And the church is the only hope the world's got. Do we really believe that? I mean, we see it. We see it taking place in our every day. We see it happening. But the only hope that we've got is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to people who are lost and going to hell. But there's people in God's church who believe that there is some personal gain to disrupting the church's unity. It can't be that way. Secondly, don't, don't miss the commentary on the agitator's body language. I love how Proverbs says this. He says here that, that he, he, he winks with his eyes. He signals with his feet. He, he points with his finger. This is a, you know, I remember Bill O'Reilly used to have the body language expert on his show, and this is, this is body language 101 in the Bible. Uh, I mean, clearly his speech is mentioned. He's got, a, he's got crooked speech, but if you were buying a car from somebody, and you describe their body language this way. You know that car salesman, he was winking his eyes all the time and, and kind of shifty with his feet, you know, didn't really know what he was going to do, and he kept pointing. If you were dealing with somebody and trying to make a deal with somebody with that sort of, 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 of body language, then you would know he's got a lot more than an extended warranty he's trying to sell you. You may not know what, but you would quickly come to the conclusion that this guy you're talking to is up to something and probably up to no good. Well, what's the Bible say? Verse 14 says that the agitator's primary motivation is sowing discord. The agitator's primary motivation is sowing discord. The Bible says that with a perverted heart, he devises evil. Well, what kind of evil are we talking about? Is he, is he plotting murder? Is he planning a heist? Is he going to steal something? That's not the evil that the Bible's talking about here. Instead, we're told that he's an agitator. He is constantly sowing discord. What exactly does that mean? Well, the image of sowing is particularly compelling. It's not that he's stirring up discord. It's not that he's, he's, he's provoking discord. It says that he's sowing discord. Now, again, I'm not much of a, not much of a, of a farmer, uh, back in the fall, I did get some winter rye, and, uh, and I wanted to throw some winter rye on my lawn to try to get some green stuff growing in the wintertime. And, and I thought, well, we'll see if this stuff comes up. I don't know. So I got a bag of rye, and I just started throwing it out in the yard to see what would happen. And uh, I got green stuff growing. But, you know, I didn't get green stuff everywhere because everywhere that I missed when I was just throwing the seed out, they didn't get green stuff there. And so my lawn looks interesting with all this green rye that came up, uh, kind of just scattered. Because I sowed it. I just sowed it by hand. I, I threw it out to see where it would land. And where it landed, it grew up. Where it didn't land, it didn't grow up. I, I was kind of hap you know, happenstance in how I did it. Uh, so, so what we talk about here, and we're talking about sowing, is, 
we're scattering seeds to see what comes up. We're talking about sowing discord here. Not everything's going to take root. But man, when it does, there's no stopping it. Well, what do you think's in that pack of seeds that the agitator is sowing? Well, things like stirring up controversies, creating unnecessary strife, pitting people against one another, because the agitator's just looking to see what will take. If I can stir up a problem or, or make these people irritated at each other, then I've, I've accomplished my objective. Now, you hear this and you think, man, he's describing the media today. Or he's describing politicians today, just, just looking to see where we can, we can stir up trouble, where we can create strife, where we can build animosity and, and hardship in our communities. And we certainly know that there's profiteering to be made by, by those organizations that do it today. We know that's the, the motive there, but, but that's not the case in the church. You see, what ails our nation currently is the product of professional agitators, but let's not be so naive to think that that doesn't happen within the community of God's people as well, that that doesn't happen within the church walls. Sadly, we've come to expect it from our televisions. We shouldn't expect it in the church parking lot. But what does God say about it? Verse 15 talks about certain judgment. Verse 15 says, Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. Now, the reality is, is the judgment against this may not come in this life, but there is ultimately a judgment to be had. This may be seen as a very harsh condemnation of the agitator's behavior. But when we think about exactly what's happening here, it makes perfect sense. Because by their actions, agitators are distracting and corrupting the church's gospel witness. They're distracting and corrupting the church's gospel witness for a community that is to be bound together under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody that would be willing to work to cause discord, it should not surprise us to see that God takes this very, very seriously, especially when we consider language like the church being the, the bride of Christ. It only adds to the seriousness of it. I think most honorable husbands would, would agree, if somebody messes with your wife, man, those are fighting words, right? Somebody says something about my wife, I, I mean, I'll defend her honor. Uh, I'm not afraid of it. I'll deal with the consequences of the action later, but I'll defend her honor. Uh, that's just, that's just how, how I honor her. She is my wife. She was my bride. I love her, and I will do everything I need to to protect her. Most husbands, I think, would agree. So let's just say this. If you've got the nerve to go around and mess with the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. You better be ready for trouble. Because that's what it says here. Calamity is how the book of Proverbs describe it. What's a calamity? It's a disaster. It's something unexpected and total. There's no recovering from it. It's a calamity. That's the judgment that comes against the agitator. Now, some people would look at this and say, well, that's a, that's a section break. You know, we get into the next section, and, and it's something different. But really, what we see in verses 16 through 19 shed light on the role of the agitator. In, in, chapter, in, in chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, we see that it begins with these words. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. You know, many people get here and they, they find this list in Proverbs and they think, oh, I've stumbled across the, the, what's commonly known as the seven deadly sins. 
You know, seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. So this must be that list. However, we want to make sure we don't conflate what is known as the seven deadly sins with this list from Proverbs. Just by way of explanation, the seven deadly sins, you're not going to find those listed out. You know, here's number one, number two, number three. They're not in the Bible in that regard. Uh, but we do know them, pride, envy, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, sloth. Those are what are traditionally known. Again, that, there's no list in the Bible. It's not like you get the Ten Commandments, the, you know, and the seven deadly sins in the next chapter. Now, all those are sins, and left unchecked, they're certainly deadly. But the idea of those seven deadly sins came from a, a pope in the 6th century. And so in Catholic theology, these seven deadly sins are called cardinal sins. They're primary sins. They're root sins for all other kinds of sins. But this list in Proverbs is actually has a different function. It's actually quite helpful for us. Because you see a structure here that you need to pay attention to. It begins with six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. What this is is a, is a Hebrew device. It's a literary device that functions as a built-in commentary on the text. So you see these seven things spelled out. There's six, and then there's one more. And so what we see here is that what is the abomination to the Lord is, is number seven. It's the one who sows discord among brothers. And then the other six are, are explained by that. So the problem with, with haughty eyes, meaning somebody who's full of themselves, somebody who thinks that they're, they're something, the, the problem is that's arrogance. And, and you know how if, you got, if you're on a team and there's somebody on the team who's extremely arrogant, that team's not going to function as it should. The lying tongue. Imagine being part of a team where you can't trust the person who is speaking. Uh, you keep going down the list. Hands that shed innocent blood. There's not a lot of unity there. A heart that devises wicked plans. Somebody's always conniving, always, always scheming, always up to something. And what God says about this person who is tearing down the unity of his community is that it is an abomination to him. That's a word we don't use very often. What do you think about spaghetti? Oh, it's an abomination to me. We don't say that, you know. We don't use that term. Well, did you like that new episode of the program? No, it was an abomination. We don't say that. What does that word literally mean? Well, in the Bible, it's used with some particularly offensive concepts. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, child sacrifice is considered an abomination. Well, I would agree. Uh, I, I, I would agree wholeheartedly that, that child sacrifice in the Bible, and even today, child sacrifice is an abomination to the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 5, witchcraft is seen as an abomination to the Lord. And so uh, someone who is a, who's, a, who's a witch or the, in the, involved in the occult, those things are seen as abominations. So if you're somebody who is drawn towards sowing discord, you need to be careful. You're walking a very dangerous pathway, and it is clearly not a pathway of wisdom. You know, you look at this list, and you say, Pastor, I, I'm not doing anything like that. I'm not shedding innocent blood except during deer season. You know, I, I'm not the, the proudest man in the room. So, so I, I'm not guilty of anything right here, right? I mean, I'm good, right? Well, I want to give you some practical indicators that, that show where you may be someone who is sowing discord. Very practical things that, that we may actually find ourselves engaged in as at various times in our life, and we need to recognize that these things are... are they turn God's stomach. That's what that word abomination means. It's revolting. What are, what's one of those things? Stir in the pot. That's a southern phrase. I don't know if it works everywhere, but y'all know what stir in the pot is, right? 
If you're, if you're not from around here, uh, ask your neighbor who's laughing, because they know what stirring the pot means. Um, if you're somebody who seems to always have a pulse on where the discontentment lies, you know, if you're, if you're somebody who's always got that, that figured out, if, if you're on the phone and you're on social media and you find yourself being the trustee of all things negative or critical, that's, that's pot stirring. Uh, if, you're, if you're putting things out there to see what kind of reaction you get, and not, not humorous, right? You know, you're putting stuff out there to see what people say or to see if you can get under somebody's skin. That's stirring the pot, if you know there's somebody that gets riled up and you purposely press that button to see their reaction, that's what stirring the pot is. And again, that is sowing discord. Another real practical example of, of sowing discord is, is gossiping. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about our words. Uh, you think about how much ink the Bible spills on the, the quality of our words, the character of our words, the content of our words. The book of James has a whole chapter devoted to the power of the tongue. Gossiping is one of those things that, that, that stirs up discord because all it takes is for me to say something untrue about you to somebody over here and now you're caught in the middle of a mess. And it breaks down the unity in the body of Christ or when we say, you know what, we need to pray for so-and-so because he he, you know, he's got this going on in his life and you know, his marriage is struggling. Well, that's, that's stirring up, a, that's, that's spreading rumors and, and, and gossip. You know, I wonder how much damage is done among the Lord's people simply because of a gossiping tongue. Here's a third real practical example of someone who stirs up discord. Self-importance. If you have an inflated view of your opinions and preferences, and you're not afraid to throw that around, you may recognize that other people feel differently than you do, but you don't really worry about what other people think. Man, the Man, the devil's done a number on us in this regard, hadn't he? This, this inflated view of self-importance. You know, most church fights happen because one group thinks that their ideas and opinions are more important than another group's ideas and opinions. That's what causes most churches to have fights. We're over here fighting about whether God wants us to sing from a screen or sing from a book, and the community's watching thankful that they're not a part of it. There ain't anywhere in the Bible that talks about that. It's just our preference and opinions, and we fight about it. Churches split over it. And I bet God looks at us and says, what are y'all doing? What are y'all doing? Now, the biblical prohibition about sowing discord does not mean that everybody needs to go along to get along. This is where we get into dangerous things like personality cults. People are flawed. Leaders are flawed. Your leaders at Chattanooga Valley Burt Baptist Church are flawed. And if they don't think they are, then they shouldn't be leaders of a church. Godly leaders strive to follow the Lord, but sometimes they miss the mark. And inasmuch as sowing discord is not tolerated, there are some things that we need to keep in mind. Certain things can't go unchecked. False teaching is one of those things. Now, again, misspeaking is not the same as false teaching. Uh, Spencer won't mind me telling this story. Uh, 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 he's shaking his head. A couple of, a couple of years ago, we were at uh, Trunk or Treat. And uh, we had a little gospel presentation set up over in the, uh, over in the field there, and, and we had a script that we were supposed to follow. And, and one of the lines that he was supposed to use was, was Jesus was sinless. And what came out for one of those groups was Jesus was sinful. <laughs> he doesn't believe that. I know he doesn't believe that because he wouldn't be sitting here if he believed that. 
He doesn't believe that at all. He misspoke. It doesn't make him a heretic. We didn't run him out of town on a rail. It was, a, it was, a mis, it was misspeaking. It, that happens from time to time. Uh, misunderstanding is not make someone a, a false teacher. If, if somebody, if your Sunday school teacher doesn't understand a, a particular theological concept and stumbles over it, it doesn't make him a heretic. It means there's an opportunity for, for teaching there. However, deliberately leading someone into unbiblical belief cannot be tolerated in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I stood up and started preaching to you the prosperity gospel, you have an obligation to relieve me of my responsibilities. Bottom line. Gross immorality is another one of those things. Again, the Bible gives us clear prescriptions on how to handle gross immorality. It does not ask us to tolerate it or embrace it or celebrate it. But again, I think we would acknowledge that most of the problems of discord in the body, it's not about false teaching or gross immorality. The fact of the matter is most of the problems of discord stem from things that aren't really in the Bible at all. They stem from matters of opinion and personal preference. And everyone is entitled to that. Everyone's entitled to opinions and preferences. And sometimes our opinions and preferences aren't going to line up. Somebody last week left me some Girl Scout cookies in my box outside my office. And I want to say that whoever did this was a very smart, intelligent person because they left the very best kind of Girl Scout cookies in the box outside my office. They left me tagalongs. Now, if they had left Thin Mints, I would have had to question their judgment and their wisdom. But they left me tagalongs. However, there are some of you who would look at me and say, Pastor, you're, you're, you're out in left field. Everybody knows Thin Mints are better than tagalongs. And you're welcome to disagree with me. You're wrong. But you're welcome to disagree with me. You know what? That's a matter of preference. And I used a perfectly silly example because in the grand scheme of eternity, most of the things that cause people to get all riled up are about as important as Girl Scout cookies. In 10,000 years, thin mints or tagalongs aren't going to matter at all. We're not going to care about it in 10,000 years. But man, churches will fuss over the color of the carpet, the tempo of the music. Some of y'all didn't like my... Uh, my interpretation of Amazing Grace this morning. Sorry, I didn't like it either. But it shouldn't damage our unity. Differences of opinion and differences of preference should never damage our unity. It should never damage our relationships. And I will say this, I think this is where we miss this so much. That if brothers and sisters in Christ, if we would embrace this idea, it would change the church today. In matters of preference or opinion, we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can disagree without being disagreeable. I don't have to call you an idiot because you prefer thin mints, thin mints to tagalongs. I don't have to go on social media and call you out. I don't have to treat you like less of a person because you have a different, a different preference than I do. I can love you because we're in this together. And we've got a purpose much greater than the preferences that we bicker about. We can disagree, but we shouldn't be disagreeable. You know, the reality is, is when Jesus looks at us, he has an expectation that his body be united. 
John chapter 13, verse 35 says this. He says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you know that that is the only evangelism strategy that's given to us in the Bible? There are instructions for what we are to do, but in terms of how to go about conducting your life so that it bears evangelistic fruit, it's this. Again, not the Great Commission. The Great Commission says go, make disciples, but it doesn't tell us how. You know, again, we have to extrapolate. But here, Jesus gives us clear instructions for how we are to have a gospel witness to our community. All people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. When people look at the church and they say, look at how those people treat each other. Look how they love each other. Look how they respect one another. Look how they care for one another. They say, that's, that's different than the world out here. Because they manifest that, that attitude towards one another. But then look at John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays for you and he prays for me in John chapter 7, verse 20. In his last few hours of life before he's crucified, he spends time praying and he prays for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, talk about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And we all say, hey, that's us. Because we believe through the word the, the apostles preached. He's praying for us. What's he praying for us? This is insightful that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I've always said that the last words of a dying man carry particular significance. And Jesus' words here in what's called the high priestly prayer Spends time praying for us. And his prayer is very specific, that we would be one. Now, obviously, we can't be one in person, but we can be one in purpose. We can be one in vision. And if you're a sluggard, you're going to have a hard time with this. If you're somebody that doesn't want to work and doesn't want to lift a finger and doesn't want to put your hands to the plow, doesn't want to be about the work of the Father, it's going to be hard to be one. If you're an agitator who's constantly looking to stir up trouble, to stir the pot, to spread gossip, and all those sort of things, it's going to be hard to get behind the purpose that God has established for us. Jesus wants and expects unity and spends some of his last breath praying for it. Shame on us if we disregard his wishes. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for the wisdom of the word, for the instructions that you give us. Lord, help us to avoid the sin of being an agitator or someone who's stirring up stuff for the sake of stirring up stuff. Again, Lord, we know that, that there are certain things that we don't have to embrace, certain things we don't tolerate, there's certain things that go against your word that we do have to, to stand firm against. But God, guard our hearts against conflating our opinions and our preferences with things of biblical significance. Guard our hearts against the, the, the feeling in us 
that, that what we want is more important than unity in the body? Or may we treat others' ideas and opinions and thoughts as being just as important as our own? Lord, we know that your church today, not our church, but the church, is fractured in so many ways. And so much sin and disunity has crept in. And we know churches will split over some of the silliest things today. Lord, what a terrible gospel witness to the community. We want to sit here and fuss about things that don't matter. And the whole time the world's looking on and asking us, what are you doing? So, Lord, I'm convinced that if, if a group of scientists in NASA can put all their differences aside and can land a pickup truck on Mars, if people at SpaceX can land a, a rocket vertically, in 10,000 years, those things aren't going to matter. It's not going to matter how many little robots we've got roaming around Mars or how many spaceships we can land and take off. It's not going to matter. But in 10,000 years, what is going to matter is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is busy about its mission and is busy about its purpose. And that happens here. It happens in our hearts. It happens with these people. So may we be actively engaged. Not in our business. Not in other people's business. But we, 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 may we be engaged in our Father's business. Lord, guard our hearts against being sluggards and agitators. And let us be faithful men and women committed to the task and set before us. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.